If you have your Bibles, you can turn with me to Matthew 11. We've been going through the Gospel of Matthew, and we're in Matthew 11. And as you're turning there, um, what if I told you that I had breaking news? We are in the midst of a pandemic. Now, what would you think? You'd, well, yeah, that's real breaking news. Thanks a lot, Captain Obvious. All right. Now, what if I told you that this pandemic was caused by somewhat of a novel uh, condition? It's been around for, I mean, as long as there's been humanity, but something unique has happened over the last 20, maybe 10 years that's caused this exponential explosion in cases. What if I told you that it's one that actually infects right at 50% of adults, and the most um, susceptible part of our demographic of our population to this uh, condition are kids between the ages of 13 and 25, with somewhere in the neighborhood of 75 to 80% expressing that they've experienced mild to severe symptoms. Of this condition, what if I told you that this condition was significantly uh, contributed to dementia, depression, sleep deprivation, heart disease, anxiety? What if I told you that doctors thought that the um, mortality impact, so the way it would impact your likelihood for early mortality, uh, was significantly worse than obesity, significantly worse than smoking? And in fact, to reach its level, you would have to smoke about 15 cigarettes a day and be obese. What would you think? Now, what I want us to focus on is in Matthew chapter 11. So what we were going to do in, there's a kind of a key question I want you to think about today. And the key question that's going to frame this week and next week is the question, how would your life be different if you knew Jesus was your friend and God was your father? How would your life be different if you knew that? If that was like one of the deepest things that you knew, how would our world be different if you knew that Jesus was your friend and God was your father? See, Matthew 11 and 12 is all about Jesus' identity. And we see these unique things in Matthew chapter 11. We get this instance where it says that Jesus was the friend of tax collectors and sinners. He was their friend. And then starting in Matthew 11 verse 25, there's this remarkable passage where he's celebrating his relationship with his father. Look at 25. At that time, Jesus said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and intelligent and revealed them to infants. Yes, Father, because this was your goodwill. All things have been entrusted to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father. And no one knows the Father except the Son, and whoever the Son reveals him. So come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me because I am lowly and humble in heart and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And on this Father's Day, what I wanted to do was to highlight those two things, spend about 10 minutes thinking about Jesus as our friend and God as our Father. But when I started looking at, all right, why, why do we need a friend? What's, what's wrong with us that we need a friend? Or what's happening in our world and the fatherlessness that's happening? I completely fell into the deep end of both and thought, wow, these subjects are so much bigger than I could imagine. And the research is so much more expansive. So actually what we're going to do today is we're just going to focus on Jesus as our friend And then next week, we're going to cycle back for God as our Father. So about the condition I was telling you about, what if I told you? It's actually true. There's researchers who think we do have that kind of condition that's that significance, and it's called loneliness. 
You know, there's C.S. Lewis quote as we think about like friendship and loneliness. And this comes from his book on the four loves and this powerful quote because he says to the ancients, friendship seems the happiest and most fully human of all loves, the crown of life and school of virtue. So the four loves is about explaining the different kind of words used for love in Greek. And, you know, there's a word for kind of erotic love. And there's a word for affection that you have for like children or other things that you're tending. And a word for brotherly love, phileo, you know, Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. And, and then uh, this is the word, you know, and agape for like God's love or charity, deep charity. And talking about the love of friendship. And it's such a remarkable quote because do you think we value friendship like that? That friendship is the crown of life. It's the most fully human of all the loves. The crown of life and the school of virtue. And so what I want to do and what I was fully kind of intending is, all right, we're going to kind of have a challenge. All right, Dad, you know, men in general, you know we're bad at friendship, so let's do it better because we need it. And then fatherhood, all right, here's how, you know, our world's falling apart because no fatherlessness. But as I started just diving in, I was just really shocked and at what kind of comes up, especially with this idea of loneliness. And this certainly isn't something that just plagues men. This is a society-wide pandemic. And so what we're going to do is we're just going to think about that, that idea of Jesus is our friend and loneliness. Why do we need relationships? And we're thinking about kind of three things. Just think, all right, the crisis we're in, the care we need, and then the cure he gives. So let's think about the crisis we're in. So we'll just kind of so, all right, how do we get this way? How is this something that's all of a sudden becoming uh, kind of on the forefront? And maybe one person we can get some help from is uh, Dr. Vivek Murphy, who uh, his book together, he was the 19th. So this is my, you know, every week I give you a little uh, summer reading uh, uh, recommendation. So if, if you're interested in this, this is a summer reading recommendation. His book together, um, The Healing Power of Human Connection in a Sometimes Lonely World. I don't know why the publisher had that sometimes, because you read this book and you realize there's no sometimes about it. It is almost the default characteristic of life in our modern age. But he was the uh, Surgeon General under uh, President Obama, uh, 19th, and then was reappointed to that post under Biden. So he is our current cert, uh, Surgeon General. And what's interesting is he kind of started walking down this path he, he noticed uh, in his surgical operations that he was dealing with patients who were having to make incredibly difficult choices about life-threatening surgery. And uh, he would ask him, all right, who do we need to call in so we can have this discussion? And as his practice grew, he started to know more and more people would say things like, well, I don't know. I don't have anyone. And so, we need, I mean, we need, like, we need to have different people come in. Who do we need to ask? I mean, you're on your, your deathbed, and there, there's no one to deal with. And he said, you know, these remarkable trends of loneliness, and as he's engaging about how to help them think through this pro, uh, process of incredibly risky, possibly life-saving surgery, but life-threatening, he'd hear things like, well, what does it matter? I just feel invisible. I can't call in anyone because I carry all the burdens alone. If I disappeared, who would know? So what does it matter? And he started pulling on these threads and recognizing these consequences are so far more extensive than I ever could have imagined. And then if you remember, Michelle Obama's one of her great emphasis was on childhood obesity. So when he became Surgeon General under uh, Obama, she wanted to push him to kind of get out the word. That's what we're going to target and really tackle. And as he started really uh, kind of going, in essence, on the campaign trail all across the country, started realizing, wait, there's actually another 
pandemic that's underneath the surface, that's driving so many of these things. In many ways, childhood obesity is not the real problem that's facing the children. The consequences are so much more profound. And he started wrestling, all right, what are we even talking about when we talk about this sense of loneliness where people feel invisible? They feel that if they disappear, no one cares. They don't have the relationships. He said, what we're trying to wrestle with is this subjective term that's really hard to define, but it describes what we're wrestling with is how do you describe the gap between the social connections that people need and then the relationships they actually have? So there's this gap between the relationships you need, the social connections you need, and then the ones you actually have. And he says, you know, it leads to a heightened state of anxiety. It leads to a heightened state of inflammation, feeling all those things that I said in the beginning. In 2018, you know, uh, Kaiser Permanente put a study out to see the effects of loneliness and isolation. And they, they came up with about 22% of the population suffers from it from a significant way. And then in 2020, the uh, Cigna uh, had some questions about their methodology and said they, they don't think the numbers accurately reflected what's really going on. And they put the number at somewhere in the neighborhood of 50% uh, representing. The Center of Social Justice in the United Kingdom found out that of retired age individuals in the UK, 17% of them only interact with friends or family less than or right at once a month. And then they found that 11% have less than one interaction with friends or family per month. So it seems to be this uniquely Western, developed country problem. And probably one of the most staggering things that I read uh, this past week is just thinking through, you know, you might think it's a problem that plagues the elderly, but it's not. The most significant demographic that feels this the most are teenagers. Kids between 13 and 25, the Springtide Institute, every year they do these big, massive research projects where they're focusing in on 13 to 25-year-olds. And their project that was published in 2020, so they actually started it in 2018, was on belonging. And some of the things they found is that nearly uh, one-third of all teenagers say they have no... So the 33% of teenagers say they have no trusted adult in their life. No adult they trust. 35% say they have no one to turn to when they're stressed, when they're scared, when they're anxious, when they're unsure. And so you think, this is just a, a, a pandemic, significantly worse than anything we could see. Why? How does this happen? And one of the things that Dr. Murthy says is, he was asked, all right, so doctor, you have to diagnose. How did we get here? What are the causes? Some of the things that he thinks is, you know, you look and it's, um, you know, the mobility of our society has disrupted place. So, you know, people moving around so much, that's disrupted place. And that's a reality of the world we live in. I mean, you can think uh, somebody met Cynthia the other day and when they found out she was from Orlando, they're like, oh, you're the unicorn. You know, we, you're the first person we've ever met who's actually from here. And so everybody, disrupted place, so that leads to it. Um, he says it's how we use technology, very different than technology itself, but how we use it, the amount of time, the way it's filtered in, the way we allow it to creep into the interactions, and we um, kind of push interactions with people who are actually in front of us in the flesh and prioritize digital interactions. Um, talked about the way that, you know, we've always been, you know, so we've always had the disease of uh, comparisonitis or comparitis, where we try to compare ourselves to others. But, so, you know, social media just uh, exponentially, you know, blows that up a hundred times. Part of it, he thinks, is our co- uh, 
cultural constructs of self-worth that is driven by you know, wealth, power, and fame as the markers of success. And I think one of the reasons, he doesn't mention this, but I'd add to those, one of the things is just our confusion about like what healthy relationships and friendships actually are. I think we're experiencing some of the poisonous fruits of the fact that sexuality has permeated and tainted everything. We are so emotionally illiterate. We don't have different words for different types of loves like they had even in the Greek world. You know, we talk about love, the same thing, you know, you love the deepest relationships in your life and you love peanut butter brownies. And we use it in the whole range. And then the way sexuality has permeated all of these things, you know, Freud believed that every spark of love in your heart is suppressed sexuality, no matter which way it's directed, towards friends, towards parents, towards other ones. And that has tainted and stained so many relationships. That's exactly what Satan wants to do. Take God's good gifts, sink his teeth in it, and twist it. And so you have context where one of the greatest gifts in life is healthy, loving, deep relationships between uh, men and men, between women and women, between men and women, and it's been tainted because everything's sexualized. You can see it in the way people talk about like movies. One of my favorite book series is the Master and Commander series. I love that book series. And when the movie came out about a decade or so ago uh, with Russell Crowe, it got terrible reviews. And many of the reviews would talk about how this book is just a demonstration of the patriarchy and the oppression of women. And one person even said, how can you have a movie where there's no love in it? I mean, there's no love. I'm saying, listen, like, right, I'm a fan, so I can be emotionally invested. But do you know the point of the story? The point of the all 22 novels is the love between Captain Jack and Stephen Maturin. It's their love, their deep, unbreakable, unviolatable friendship that grows, even though they are as opposites as could be in every sphere. It's their love that is the point of the story. So when you say there's no love, you don't mean there's no love. You mean there's no something else. So say what you mean, because there is love in it. And you can see that in so many stories. You look at things like the Lord of the Rings. You know, where's the romance? Where's the love? That's the point of the story is these deep friendships. Harry Potter, Toy Story, these stories that become iconic in our culture are highlighting these things that we don't have and we don't uh, know how to deal with friendship. It can bring something into your life that no other love, no other relationship, no romance, no family can bring. Then we put it in this back seat. So, one of the things, the crisis we're in, I mean, we are in a very lonely nation. And we, we don't know how to do, deal with it. We're, we're confused, don't have categories for deal with it. But before we move to the next point, I just want to remind you that that sense of loneliness is not evidence of weakness. It's godliness crying out. The reason why we're lonely is because it is not good for man, for men and women, to be alone. Because we weren't created to be alone. The reason why is because we are made in the image of a triune God. And one of the reasons we named our church Trinity is because we believe that the deepest reality of all of life is the Trinity. And everything that is good and beautiful about life can be traced back to the Trinity. And if God exists in a community, why do we think we don't need one? You know, I have in my notes right here that if Jesus needed friends, who do I think I am not to think I need them? 
And I want to soften that a little bit because kind of the theologian in me is saying, well, did Jesus need friends? I mean, he was a self-existent, you know, incarnate son of the living God. But so maybe he didn't need them, but he certainly valued them. So maybe we'll tap it just a step, but he valued them. He had them. It says he was the friend of tax collectors and sinners. They were important to him. And on the night when he was betrayed, what does he do? He gets his friends together on his darkest night and says, I no longer call you servants. I call you friends. I need friends right now. So it's important. And I think it's one of the reasons why saying goodbye is so hard. You know, one of the challenges, we didn't really expect this. We knew Orlando was transient. We didn't expect how often we'd say goodbye to people. And in one sense, it's, it's hard. And it should be. Because we weren't made to say goodbye. So this is the, 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 the crisis we're in. So what do we do? Well, here's the care you need. And so this little acronym, let's look at this little acronym, CARE. Um, I can't actually remember where this came from. I think it came from Redeemer's Church uh, Planning Manual and their small groups of the type of relationships that you try to cultivate. But it's a good little acronym. What type of care do we need? What, what are the marks of real, genuine friendship? Well, one is just constancy. You know, Proverbs, a friend loves at all times. A brother is born for adversity. A man of many companions will come to ruin, but there's a friend who sticks closer than a brother. So there's a constancy. So saying, you know, the difference between companions and friends, the friend is going to be there all times, good or bad. You know, they'll never let you go down a path that you shouldn't. And one of the challenges is in our world, we do have many companions, but very, very few friends. You know, Sherry Turkle, who's written kind of the Dr. Sherry Turkle, has written kind of a lot on social media and its impact on us psychologically, uh, says that digital relationships offer the illusion of companionship without the demands of relationship. So without the demands, this illusion of companionship without the demands. You know, real relationships are hard. They're demanding. But there's a constancy there. Friends are going to show up. They're going to be there. But then, A, it's also affectionate. You know, there's a certain affection. You know, friendship, I love the way C.S. Lewis in his, that chapter in The Four Loves on friendship, he talks about the way it begins. He said, friendship always begins with the phrase, what, you two? I thought I was the only one. So there's mutual loving. And the way you can see, I mean, just go look at the playground on the first week of school, and there's the, the friendships blossom um, by two people looking at each other. You know, our little son, Benjamin, you know, he met his good friend at school and they bonded because his name is Ben and his name is Ben. <gasps> we have the same name. Thought I was the only one. And they look down and there's, you know, Darth Vader on each shirt. <gasps> you have the same name? So, <gasps> and then that, uh, the friendship is, is unbreakable has been born. And that's how these things begin. They begin with this affection, but it's also affection for looking at something else. You know, Lewis talks about how lovers are generally like face-to-face looking at each other, but friends are shoulder-to-shoulder looking at something, you know, moving in a certain direction. There's an affection there. But then they're, they're, they're also real. You know, Proverbs 27, 6, faithful are the wounds of a friend, but profuse are the kisses of an enemy. So real friends, actually, it's more loving for them to wound you than it is for an enemy to kiss you. You know, words, true, hard words, words of life. You love them to tell them the truth. There's a realness where you don't have to pretend. You don't have to pose. You don't have to preen. They can see past all the posturing. There's a realness. And that's what real relationships, not just any relationship that's real, 
will expose you in a way that we don't like. You know, I used to think I was a good person until I got married. And then many of my foibles and deficiencies became obviously exposed. But I know without a doubt I'm a much better person because I did get married. Or with kids. You know, I used to think I was patient. (laughs) And then we had kids. And I still remember the day and the location. It was at the Chick-fil-A in Tifton, Georgia on a road trip with my three-year-old and two-year-old girl where the fact that I was not patient became painfully obvious both to myself and every single person in the parking lot. Used to think that. I said, do you have real friends, real relationships that can expose you? You know, we need those. It's real. And then the E is emotionally connected. So you're connected, you know, one of the things about real friends is they just can't be happy when you're sad. And real friends just can't be sad when you're happy. You know, one of the things we're working on in our house right now is when we go to birthday parties and our friends get something we really want, we're going to be happy for them, not sad for ourselves. And that's really hard. That's hard for a 7-year-old. It's hard for a 77-year-old. But real friends are emotionally Connected. So, I mean, what we see, there is a pandemic. And you know, in that pandemic, you know, epidemiologists have started to study it. What can we do about this? Even mathematicians are getting in on the act. One study was done by a group of mathematicians, but they had a hard time even defining what friendship is. So the way they chose to define it is they just asked a thousand people, all the people they knew, and if anybody named the same person, then you were, you were friends. That's how, like, deficient we are in understanding friendship. If you just know the person's name, you get to count. And then public policy experts are trying to get in. The public policy uh, group at a Pepperdine University thinks this is the great social issue of our time. And so is there a cure? Like, how do we cure this? Is there a vaccination that we need to wait for Big Pharma to send to us? How do we cure this? Let's look at the cure he offers. You know, how would your life be different if you knew at the deepest level that Jesus really was that friend for you. Let's actually pull it back up, Camden, and just look at the, like, what if you really knew of his constancy? What if you believed it? What if you believed him when he said, all authority in heaven and earth is mine, and I'm going to send you out on this mission to, to make disciples, and then there's a purpose for your life, and I promise you, I will never leave you or forsake you. Like, how would your life be different if you believed that? Or if you knew his affection for you? Like, if you heard him say, there is no greater love than someone laying down their life for their friends, and I call you friends. Or what if you knew, and actually intuitively we all know that with him, there's no faking. He is real with us. You know, the great prayer in the Book of Common Prayer that before confession, Almighty God, to you all hearts are open all desires known, and from you no secrets are hid. You know, we come into his presence, all hearts are open, all desires are known, no secrets are hid, and he loves you anyway. Like, what if we really knew that? What if we knew the emotional connection uh, that he has where there's no experience we can ever walk through that he can't understand or sympathize? You know, how would your life be different? How would your relationships be different? How would your interior world be different? You know, the beauty of the cure that he offers is what the gospel, it gives before it demands. 
See, Jesus doesn't demand you to be that kind of friend before he actually is that kind of friend to us. He is the ultimate friend. And when we see him doing all of those things, when we see and know and feel his care for us, it transforms us. So we can have the emotional stability to be constant, express affection, to be real, to be emotionally connected. You know, there is a power that's strong enough to transform not just acquaintances into friends, but enemies. Think about the power of the gospel to transform the apostle Paul who hated the church, hated Christ, was trying to kill them, and he got transformed into one of his greatest lovers. That's what he does. He transforms not just acquaintances or strangers into friends, but enemies. That's how powerful that is. And once you experience that, it frees you. Once you realize what it took for him to make room to welcome you, you then open up and make room and welcome others. So what does it mean? Let's take that little phrase. I've been thinking about that a lot the last week is make room. There's a great little book on Christian hospitality and how the early church called make room, how the early church made room. And then is from a um, uh, lady who was working with trying to help develop community in New York City. And so just think about that phrase, making room. You, you, you got to meet earlier. Uh, Sam came up to help me with announcements. And... Uh, one night, or one uh, one evening, we were we were in our living room just watching uh, television, and you're all spread out on the couch. And you know, our big family squashed on the couch. Everybody's kind of got their spot. They're snuggled in. Sam had fallen asleep. He had taken a nap, and then he had he had come out, and so he kind of toddles in, and you know, he's got Passy hanging out the mouth. He's got his four blankets. He's got his little you know stuff in him, and he kind of comes toddling in and sees all of us, like surveys the scene. And then there's like this sense of mortal betrayal. Like y'all are having screen time. Y'all are watching a movie without me. And then the lip starts to quiver. And we're like, Sam, do you, want us, do you want us to make room on the couch? Come on, buddy. Come on. And he just nods his head and then comes and buries. And then all is right. Like, we will make room for you. And, you know, when you're two feet tall and 22 pounds and you have these, you know, cute chubby cheeks and this hair you just love to rub, it's easy to make room for you. We'll make room. It's easy. But last week, I was watching the NBA playoffs, so I kind of I hijacked the living room. The kids obviously didn't want to watch that, so they, they uh, what's the right word? I'm thinking siege. That's not the right word. They go into our bedroom and they take it over. And so they start watching the new Disney, like Raya. And about halfway through, I started to get a little lonely. I'm watching the NBA playoffs, but I'm all alone. And so I go and walk in and the scene, you know, Cynthia in the moment is like living her best life. This is like her moment. She's got her arms spread, all four babies just tucked in. We have this huge down blanket that the kids call the jackpot, and they fight over it, and they were all like perfectly snuggled in with only the little faces peeking out into the jackpot, and it looked like this moment of pure domestic bliss. I was like, oh, man. I was kind of like Sam, just standing there for a second like, hi, guys. What you watching? Is there room for me? <laughs> it is my bed. <laughs> and now you think like, is there room for me? Right, so if you're two feet tall and 22 pounds, it's not hard to make room for you. But if you're <laughs> bigger, <laughs> I take up a lot of room. And if they're going to make room for me in that moment, everything changes. 
The entire dynamic of domestic felicity is out the window. I take up the whole blanket, half the bed, everything's going to change. And so here's the question. Is there room for me? What do you do when there's, you know, some people, some relationships, some people, if you're going to make room for it, they're easy to bring in. Other people, not so much. So how do we make room for those? Who do you need to make room for? Maybe there's just in your heart, you need to make room, emotionally room, because through different experiences of disappointment and frustration that you've just become jaded and you shut your heart off to certain relationships, what will it require to make room for them? And maybe you need to make room in your schedule. You know, there's no real relationship can happen. That it just takes time, it takes proximity, it takes relationships. Maybe you need to make room in your schedule. Maybe you need to make room in your home to bring people in. But the beauty of the gospel is think about what it took for Christ to make room for you. He stepped out of heaven, made himself nothing, took on the form of the servant, became obedient to the point of death on the cross to make room for us. You know, in that book, Make Room, she uh, interviews a whole bunch of different folks that she had met in New York City about how difficult it was to develop community. And one um, worker, and I can't remember if she was either doing her residency or in the legal field, but was talking about she moved to New York and she was just working these just exhausting hours. I mean, it was just uh, kind of an incredible pace. And so she always had this low-lying sense of just being lonely. But she said where she would feel the sting the most is after an incredibly long day of work. She'd ride the subway. No one would speak to her. She'd go to her apartment building. She'd tromp up, you know, the 12 flights of steps. And in the, the, room, the apartment directly across the hall from her, she would smell the smell of the dinner they were cooking. She could smell it. And she would just stand there, open up her door. It'd be cold. It'd be empty. And she said, but no one ever invited me in. Now, here you are this morning, and we're about to come to the table. And the table is Jesus' promise that you live in a lonely world, and you have a lonely heart. But he stepped out of heaven to open up the door. And at his table, he is beckoning you in. Come in. There's room at his table. You know, we are in the midst of a pandemic And actually, epidemiologists and surgeons and mathematicians and public policy experts can't help us. There's something else, something older, something deeper, something more powerful and profound that can help us. So as we take communion, you you know, we come to receive holy, Holy Communion, which we say is the body and the blood of our Savior. And we only can come because of his great love for us. And although we're completely undeserving of that love, yet in order to raise us up from the darkness, in order to bring us in to everlasting life as his sons and daughters, he humbled himself to share our life with us and die on the cross for us. So in remembrance of that death, we, as a pledge of his love, we take it. But we do, in one sense, he beckons us in, but the, the requirement to get in is the willingness to repent the willingness to confess our sins and own that we need Him and that apart from Him there is no salvation and there is no hope. So on the night that He was betrayed, He took the bread and He broke it. He said, this is my body broken for you. Take and eat in remembrance of me. And then He took the cup and He said, this cup represents the wine that represents forgiveness of sins that was my blood shed 
for the forgiveness of many. Take and drink in remembrance of me. Lord, we praise you for your grace. We praise you for your gospel. We thank you that you have made us not to be alone. And we confess now that so often we are not the friends that we need to be. We do care desperately, but so often as we care desperately about ourselves. So we confess that to you and we ask that you help us. We thank you for the lengths that Christ went to, to beckon us in, to bring us in. We thank you for the tremendous promise that if you didn't say it, Lord Jesus, if you didn't say that you called us your friends, we wouldn't dare believe it. But you did say it, and we ask that you help us to believe it. Help it to be the deepest thing we know. And we ask that you then help us in your name to go out into the world and to sacrifice whatever it takes to help open up to bring people in. And all this we ask in Christ's holy name. Amen. And now may the love of a dying Savior, the power of a risen Savior, and the hope of a returning Savior be yours now, this week, forever and always. Amen.